Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. I'm aware of several of you here this morning that are struggling with some things. And in a fresh way for me, I think I'm becoming more and more gripped by the reality of the Lord and what's available because of Him, and I yearn to make that clear this morning. Let's pray as we start. Father, we do believe that because of what your Son has done for us on the cross, that we have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is our friend, he's our advocate, that he's seated at the right hand of yourself, and that when we foul up, when we don't measure up to the standards that we really should measure up to, that the Lord is there to plead our case and to point to the blood continuously. Father, we're thankful that Calvary does cover all of our sinfulness, that there's freedom, there's rest. Father, take these old truths, familiar to so many, unfamiliar to some, take these old truths and give them life because of the presence of your Spirit this morning. Commit this hour to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. Reading the first six verses in Romans chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to men who know the law. Whenever you hear the word law in these few verses, just think in terms of God's standards, what he expects of each of us. Standards to live a certain way, to love our spouse in a certain way, to raise our kids in a certain way. Think of the law as God's standards in each of our lives. Don't you know, brothers? For I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. And then Paul gives an illustration. He's not teaching on marriage here. He's simply giving an illustration to make a point. And in verse 2 he says, For example, so you get my point, let me put it this way, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. She's entirely free. The law no longer has any claim on her. She is completely free to do as she chooses. And then Paul brings a point of his metaphor, and he teaches the doctrine of freedom. Beginning in verse 4, I'll read simply 4, 5, and 6. So, my brothers, you also died to the law. Your relationship to the standards of God is now one of death. You've died to the law through the body of Christ in order that you might belong to another, not to the law, but now to to a person who loves you, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. The whole point of being dead to the law is to bear fruit. And that becomes pressure for some. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, dead to the law, aroused by the law, and now released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Talking to a friend of mine just about a week ago. 
And he told me about a phone call that he received early one morning from his mother. The man's an adult. And the phone rang early one morning, and he stumbled, reaching across the bed to find the phone, half awake. And um, the phone call was from his mother on his birthday. And she was calling to wish him a happy birthday. And she said that to him, son, I hope you have a nice day. I know it's your birthday. I wanted to call to wish you a good day. And then she paused. And because of years of experience, he knew what that pause was intended to accomplish. Her pause in conversation was his cue to then change the conversation from concern for him to concern for her. Son, hope you have a nice day. Pause. His cue, Mom, how are you doing? He felt anger as he heard that pause. He felt annoyed. Why on my birthday can't Mom call to be concerned about me? Why must she call and get me out of the way in about two minutes and then give the cue for me to talk about her for the next bit? But because he's a Christian, he felt pressure to do the right thing. And so he said, well, how are you, Mom? And for the next 20 minutes, he listened to recitation of her intestinal problems and of his father's faults, all the time getting angrier and angrier and angrier. When the phone call was concluded, and finally he hung up, having been very polite, very gracious, very loving, he hung up the phone and felt just as annoyed as he could feel. And then his annoyance turned to a level of guilt because his mother may not be a Christian. And he began to say, you know, I think I, I blew it again. I wasn't really kind to mother. I never am really gracious to mom like I should be. Yeah, she really is annoyance to me. And I can recall the years, and his mind was flooded with memories from years of how many times she had been really preoccupied with herself when he really needed a mother. And he was just frustrated with her, but felt responsible to be to her what a Christian son should be to his mother who needs the Lord. And he felt a pressure. And he made a, a vow of sorts to himself, and he said, one thing I'm going to do is to do better. When Mother calls next time, when Mother comes to visit, I am going to work so hard at being the kind of, of Christian son that the Bible commands me to be. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be long-suffering. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be gracious. What, what odds would you give him for pulling that off? Not many, would you? Why did some of you snicker? Because you've all been there, just like me. You've all felt the pressure to do right. You've all felt the pressure of Christianity. I want to suggest to you that for most of us, I see if this fits your experience. For most of us, the standards of God are a royal pain in the neck. For most of us, the standards of God, what God requires us to do, what God wants us to do, has become somehow a burden that puts us under bondage as opposed to a pathway marking out the route to some experience of joy. It hasn't become that at all for us. When we become aware of what God wants us to be, most of us quickly feel a deep pressure as opposed to a sense of liberty. Think for a moment as I proceed through the text here in just a little bit. I want you to think for a moment of the situation you're trying to handle. And I want you to think of the way you feel that you're supposed to handle it if you're handling it well as a Christian, as a good person, as a moral person, as a person who knows Christ as Lord and Savior, a person who wants to live as you should. Think of the situation that you're trying to handle. Are you really pleased with how well you're handling it? Do you feel a real joy as you go about dealing with that situation according to biblical standards? My experience as I chat with people, which I have occasion to do fairly often, 
that when you get down beneath the surface of things, that most of us feel a very strong sense of pressure to be what we're not. Many people feel a strong pressure to exhibit more evidence of growth than they find in their lives. People say, I've been saved for 16 years, been a Christian now for 25, been a Christian for two years, been involved in this course of study, been involved in this Bible study, been involved in this church, been involved in this kind of fellowship, and after all that experience, look where I am, it's not where I ought to be, and internally there's kind of a down-on-yourself sense of pressure. Pressure to be a better friend. Pressure to be a better spouse. Pressure to hold your temper better with your kids. A lot of pressure. I want to suggest you that pressure... And that's the core reality in your heart, as it is so many times, never leads to growth and always leads to failure. If your reaction to the standards of God is one of pressure, you're on the path to discouragement, frustration, and tension. You're not on the path to joy. I'm coming to believe more and more strongly. I think I've believed this for a while, but it's getting stronger in my mind. I'm coming to believe that in many Christian circles today, the gospel is understood in a way that creates pressure. And I believe that's a perversion of the gospel. If my understanding of the Christian life somehow creates a sense of pressure within me, I don't understand the gospel very well. Tom read this morning from the book of Galatians, a book in which Paul was very concerned, passionately concerned about people who were perverting the gospel. And in the middle of that book, in Galatians 4 and verse 15, Paul says to the to the, to the Christians in the, in the uh, city of Galatia, he said, what's happened to all your joy? You people used to have a sense of freedom and joy, and now that seems to be gone. Have you, have you left some understanding of the gospel? Are you understanding things in a way that is now creating pressure as opposed to relieving it? What I'm concerned to do starting today and for the next three Sundays is to present a four-part message on the word freedom. I want to talk about the word freedom, something which I believe is poorly understood in so many of our hearts, including mine. A truth of Scripture which, when feebly understood, liberates to experience joy. Christian life includes struggle, includes pain, includes includes hardship, includes suffering, includes persecution. But somehow, when the gospel is understood, there's to be a thread of joy and peace and contentment and relaxation running through the whole mess. What does it mean to be free? That's my topic, freedom. And I want you to look back at the text to get us organized as to what I want to talk about. Look back at the text and notice uh, four phrases that I've already underlined for you. This will serve as a bit of an outline for us as we look at the topic of freedom. Topic of freedom. Freedom to live as opposed to freedom to obey the law. God has plenty of commands for us. He commands us to be sexually pure. He commands us to be patient with our spouses. He commands us to be involved with our kids, even though they let us down. He commands us to do all sorts of things that are very difficult, and yet somehow we're supposed to have a relationship to his commandments that includes a deep sense of freedom as opposed to some pressured responsibility to shape up and to conform to all that God tells us we're supposed to do. Look at four phrases. Look at the text in Romans chapter 7, and look at four phrases that I want to highlight in uh, the four Sundays that I'll be teaching. The first phrase in verse 5, Paul says, when we were controlled by the sinful nature, nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies. What Paul is saying, and I'll elaborate this in a little bit, what Paul is saying is that when you feel pressure 
to keep the law, the likelihood is you'll end up sinning more. When you feel a pressure to do what God says, the likelihood is that that law itself, the good, holy commandments of God, the law is not sin, God, Paul makes that clear, but the commandments of God, when viewed as a burden to be responded to, as I would suggest most of us view them, view them, it's going to lead not to, not to more obedience, but to more failure. A lot of you younger folks are working very hard to have regular devotions. And every time you succeed, you feel proud. There's a fruit of the Spirit for you. And when you don't succeed, you feel discouraged. There's a fruit of the Spirit for you. Should you have devotions? I believe you ought to. How on earth do you handle that without pressure? Aroused by the law. First phrase. Second phrase I want to look at a little bit. In verse 4, my brothers, you died to the law. First aroused by the law. Second phrase, dead to the law. Paul says that somehow, because of what Christ has done, you and I are, are, are dead to the law. He can't pick a stronger word. Do the standards of God have any bearing on you today at all? Tricky question. Paul says somehow we're dead to the law. What on earth is he talking about? Is he saying go do whatever you want? You want to have an affair? Have an affair. You want to teach your income tax? Do that. Die with me. Hey, you're under grace. Now that Christ has died for your sins, sin more. Where sin abounds, grace thus much more abounds, so therefore continue in sin. No, Paul isn't saying that. But he is saying something which makes us want to wonder about that because he is saying we're dead to the law. What's that all about? Third phrase, Paul says we're released from the law in verse 6. By dying to what once bound us, the law, we have been released from the law so that now we, in the fourth phrase, serve in the new way of the Spirit. Four phrases. Aroused by the law, dead to the law, released from the law, and serving in the new way of the Spirit. And just to help you follow the thinking that I want to be doing with you for the next four Sundays starting today, this being the first of the four, I want to organize my thoughts around four headings, and here's the title that I'm going to be following just to help you follow my thoughts. Today we're going to be talking about freedom, what it isn't, aroused by the law. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about freedom, what it is, dead to the law. The third Sunday, we're going to talk about freedom, how to enjoy it released from the law, and the last Sunday, freedom, how to use it, serving in the new way of the Spirit. Four messages, what it isn't, what it is, how to enjoy it, how to use it. Those are my themes for the next four Sundays. First today, a few thoughts on freedom, what it isn't, aroused by the law to sin. This is a simple sermon. I've got two simple points. Play what the points are now, make a few comments, and I'm going to sit down. Two simple points to make in our first discussion about freedom. Freedom, what it isn't. The first point that I want to make is simply this. That the common understanding of how to grow as a Christian creates pressure, and therefore is not from Scripture. I would submit that the common understanding, probably among most of us in this room, as to how to live the Christian life is putting us under pressure as opposed to freedom. That's my first point. The second point is very simple, and that's that pressure leads to failure. First point, the common understanding of how to lead the Christian life, how to grow as a Christian, creates pressure. Second point, that pressure creates failure. Two points. Point one. Let me talk about it for a few minutes. Point one. Trying hard to do right is not the key to growth as a Christian. 
trying hard to be what you ought to be, trying hard to hold your tongue, and when your mother calls next time, trying hard to somehow put love into your tone of voice. When your mother calls the next time, trying hard to somehow be more patient, that's not going to lead to freedom. It's going to create pressure. The Bible's clear that heaven is something that no one's ever going to earn. Most of us understand that. The Bible's clear that heaven is a free gift that God wants to give us. When, when I die, when you die, each of us is going to go to one place or the other. The Bible makes that very clear. When I die, I'm going to go either to be with the Lord, a place we call heaven, or I'm going to be eternally separated from God, a place that's called the lake of fire, sometimes hell. And no one is ever going to get to heaven, not me, not you, no one else, is ever going to get to heaven because we tried hard. That's clear. And the reason no one's ever going to get to heaven because we try hard is because none of us can be good enough to earn heaven by trying hard. See, the Bible teaches that, that all of us have sinned. A text we all know very well in Romans. And when the Bible says that you and I have sinned, let's be very clear. Let's go back to some fundamentals and make sure that we're clear on them. When the Bible says that everyone has sinned, the Bible is not saying that each of us has been guilty of every gross sin that's possible. Many people have not killed anyone. Many folks have not cheated on their income tax. Many folks are very kind, loving, thoughtful, generous, warm, wonderful people. And God says they're sinners. Now, what's he talking about? How do you take some warm, wonderful, kind person and call him a sinner? I think the simplest way to understand that, and in my mind the most biblical, is to say that when the Bible teaches that I'm a sinner, that you're a sinner, what God is saying is none of us has ever perfectly loved. It's really as simple as that. None of us has ever perfectly loved. We don't, simply don't love perfectly. And in God's courtroom, the failure to love perfectly is a capital offense. In God's courtroom, when I'm impatient with my wife, that's a capital offense. My wife and I were taking some food to the Eisenbrons a week or so ago. Weren't real sure how to get there. My wife assured me that she knew until... We were close to where they lived. And then she said, I'm not sure. And as we drove by the road, which is the right place to turn, as we were right on it, she said, there it is. Expecting that the brakes on my car should work in such a way, we would gracefully come to a halt. The food in her lap would not fly into the dashboard. And because I didn't want that to happen, I simply slowed down a little more gracefully to avoid causing my wife to have a problem with the food in her lap. And as I slowed down gracefully, she said, You didn't pass it! Now, again, the reason you're laughing is you've all been there. You, you know what happens internally at that point. And what happens internally at that point is you fail to love perfectly. Is something as minimal as that, something which we can chuckle about and kind of laugh about, something which has not destroyed our marriage within, we got better and got back to being getting along well within two or three weeks, it was no problem. Is something as, as mild as that, am I really teaching that that's a capital offense in the courtroom of God? When we understand God's standards of love, the answer is yes. That's a capital offense. And that means that the punishment, if it's a capital offense, by definition, the punishment... The punishment is death, eternal separation from God, hell forever. But God looks at me and he says, Larry, I don't want you to go to hell because I happen to love you. Why, Lord? Well, not because of you, but because of me. That's my character. And yet you do bear the image of 
myself, and I love you because of who you are. What God did not say to me when he tells me that I deserve death, I deserve hell, what God did not say to me was, look, if you'll shape up and try harder, if next time you drive somewhere and your wife gives you faulty directions or tells you where it is that's the last minute too late to stop properly, if when all that happens, if you'll resolve to be more patient next time, if you'll do whatever's required to learn how to be patient with your wife, list all the things you appreciate, and for me that would be a very long list. List all the reasons you're thrilled to have Rachel for your wife. Meditate on that. Meditate on how loving I am and try harder to be the loving kind of person. Larry, if you pull that off, if you do reasonably well and become a little better at loving, then I'll let you into heaven. That's not what he says. We all know that. What he did say was this. Larry, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to pull it off. No matter how hard you try on your 50th wedding anniversary, you're still going to love him perfectly. Even if you try hard from the day you were married for 50 years, you're still going to fail. You're going to love him perfectly, Larry. There's nothing you can do to deserve heaven. And even if from this day on you resolve to love perfectly and pull it off, even that won't help because you've already loved him perfectly and one time's enough for capital offense, you deserve punishment. There's no escape that you can arrange but I love you, so I'm going to take over. And what the Lord did, we all know. He sent his son, Jesus. And the Lord lived a perfect life of love, never once violated love, even for a fraction of a moment. But then he went to the cross, and he endured physical death, where his heart stopped beating, and he endured spiritual death, where he was separated from his father, he endured physical death and spiritual death. Why? Not because of his sin, but because of mine. And we're all aware of how it works. That when I believe that Jesus Christ died for me, that God at that moment gives me the gift of eternal life. God says, Larry, you don't deserve it, but because your sins are paid for by the blood of my Son, the Lord Jesus, who lived a perfect life on the basis of your accepting him as Savior, believing he died for your sins, I give you the gift of life. That's the essence of the gospel message. And I've said nothing new to most of you in the last five minutes. I'm aware of that. And yet the reason I took the time to say it is because I have a point to make in a moment, but also because there may be in a group this size, people don't understand that. It may be that there's some here that really are working hard to live well, hoping that when you die, the balance scales will be in your favor. They won't be. But there's good news. And the good news is you can be forgiven. Whatever sin you have committed, you are committing, you will commit, that's available to you. And let me just say very sincerely... It may be that there are some who are wondering what I'm talking about. I'm not clear on that. It might be a new thought to you. And if it is and you want to know more about it, please talk to me after. For other folks that are involved here, Ken, Tom, and many others, it's going to be long to make known that good news to you in a clear way. It is clear to most of us that the way to begin life with God is not to try harder to do what's right. Is that clear? We all with that? The way to begin life with God is not to try harder. Why then do we get the silly, crazy, wrong, perverted notion that the way to continue with life with God is to try harder? Where does that come from? I want you to look at Galatians 3, a passage that Tom alluded to. He didn't read it, and I want to read it to you. For most of us, Christianity feels an incredible pressure to maintain certain standards or else the relationship is somehow going to be cut off. We must have our devotions. We must face our fears. We must deal with those deep things in our hearts. We must do it well. We must grow. And we feel pressure. Listen to Paul talking about that in Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified, and I want to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit? Did you become a Christian, the Spirit of God take up residence in your life by observing the law? Or did you become a Christian by believing what you heard? The second answer is correct. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing. Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you try hard to do right or because you believe what you heard? Trying harder than not make you a Christian and trying harder will not improve you as a Christian. Now, if you hear what I'm saying, that's a little bit radical. Am I telling you to go out and not try hard to be a good person this week? Verse 5 has remarkable teaching. Verse 5 says that God does not work miracles in a congregation of people who think that trying harder to do, to do all that they should is the key to growth. God does not work miracles in a congregation of people who think that trying hard to do all that they should is the key to growth. With real passion in my soul, I long to see miracles in this place. And I mean that. I long to see more and more miracles. I want to see marriages strengthened. I want to see bitterness. Some of your relationships change the tenderness and love. I want to see people who have learned over the years of their Christian experience to become hard, and some of you are very hard. I want to see you undergo a miracle of God. I want to see you not be hard, but be soft and involved and, and caring and passionately pursuing the things of God. I want to see discouraged people encouraged. That's a miracle. I want to see a body of people who live through painful times and hard struggles. I want to see them struggle with joy. And I want to see their struggle in such a way that makes others wonder what our secret is. I want us to see us become a loving community where when we're aware someone is lonely, that really matters. Those are miracles. But miracles like that are not going to happen if most of us in this church have in our minds that the key to growth is try harder to do right. Whatever that means for you, whatever level of maturity you're at, if the key to growth means trying harder not going to work. If Christianity for you is a set of expectations which you feel pressured to meet, then you have not yet understood what it means to be free in Christ and you're getting in the way of miracles in this church. Most Christian organizations keep their people intact on the basis of pressure. Most churches do the same. The common understanding of Christian growth, try hard, leads to pressure. Point two, in freedom what it isn't, this pressure to do right leads to doing wrong. Or in Paul's language, our sinful passions are aroused by the law. Now let me explain how this works. See, Paul teaches that. This is not my thinking. I didn't sit down and figure this out. This isn't the text in Romans 7. Paul says that our sinful passions were aroused by the law. Now what does he mean? That's not just kind of biblical language to read and feel spiritual about. That's truth to understand and to comprehend because it really can be life-changing. What does he mean? When you're working hard to do what you should, and, and many of you are, when you're working hard to do what you should, to be what you're not, and to perform up to standards, whosoever's, yours, your parents, 
friends, your husbands, your wives. When you're working hard to perform up to standards, then that's what it means to be living under the law. And if that's your attitude, the likelihood of failure is greater because that's your attitude. Living under pressure leads to failure. Why? When we try to live up to God's standards, we know we can never quite make it. And if we think we have, we don't understand his standards because God's standards are intolerably high. When God comes to us with his standards and says, here's what I expect, here's what I expect, here's what I expect. Larry, you snapped at your wife that time in the car. I expect you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. When I hear that kind of message to me, then the word of God becomes to me a vice around my head. It becomes a thick cloud over my soul. It becomes a a heavy weight crushing my soul. There's no freedom. There's no joy. I try hard to do right. And I fail more because of discouragement. Have you ever thought you were doing really well and then had someone exposed that you were really doing badly but you didn't know it? I think one of the hardest things I faced in my own relationship with my wife are those times, and they've been more than one, where I really have been working hard at being the right kind of husband. And I do work at that. And after having been working hard, maybe special campaigns, you know, to be the kind of husband I should be, and after three or four weeks of just thinking I'm doing marvelously, to have my wife, with tears in her eyes, share how badly I've been missing her for the past several weeks. And for me to respond with, I I just can't be good enough. I'm not enough for you. And I thought I was doing fine. It's like going to a doctor for a routine checkup to be told you're healthy, and he tells you that you're about to die from a terminal disease. Just like that, actually. You and I cannot do as well as we'd like to do. And the determination to live up to God's standards creates frustration, guilt, and pressure. And that pressure is painful. If you're trying hard to do right, let me guarantee you, at some point, if not now, at some point, you're going to feel an acute pressure and the idea of more obedience, more Bible learning, more church work, more involvement is going to seem intolerably negative to you because you want relief and all you found in Christianity is pressure. And your sinful passions are going to be stirred up. And you're going to make it your number one priority to get rid of pressure. You're going to look for ways to become successful. You're going to look for ways to indulge yourself. You're going to to look for ways to get away from the rigors of the Christian life because it's too hard. You're going to feel a terrible pressure, and your goal is going to be relief. Paul says our sinful passions are aroused by the law. When the law is my master, I feel defeated, and more opportunities to serve God are more opportunities for defeat, and what I want is to get away from that and to get into something which feels good, and the pleasures of sin are there, and my sinful passions will be around. Folks, I don't believe that the route to our maturity as a church means for all of us to become more committed. I'm involved in leadership of the church with an opportunity to serve. And as part of the elders of this church, part of that group, I know I speak for the elders and for all of us, really, I'm sure, who are involved, we want to see this church grow and become the kind of place that it could be. The root of that is not for each of us to sign some statement of commitment. If each of us works harder to do better, and that becomes the key to our effort to making this church great, we'll have no miracles. We'll sin more. We'll try harder to obey God's law. And that leads not to growth, but to more sin. If you spend this week, or if I spend this week, 
trying to grow as a Christian by trying harder than ever before to do right. If that's your approach to this week, trying harder to do what's right, then your love for the Lord by next Sunday will be less than it is today. Freedom is not the pressure to do what we should do, to be what we should be, to try harder to do what's right. What then is the place of commitment? Am I teaching against the importance of obedience? Am I saying do what you want, no matter what? Is there no place for trying to do what's right? Am I ruling that out? More importantly, is Paul ruling that out? Shouldn't we be concerned with God's standards? What really is our relationship to the law? And how does that relationship lead not to pressure, but to joy and to freedom? Freedom, what it isn't. Trying to do right. That arouses sinful passions. If that's not freedom, the question is, well, what is freedom? What is the place of commitment? What is our relationship to the law? That will be our topic next week. Let's pray. Father, there's grace far more rich than any of us has begun to comprehend. Lord, you've set us free not to go out and sin. You set us free to love. You set us free to be what we should be, and yet somehow in our twisted minds that freedom becomes a burden because we misunderstand it. We miss it. And that freedom to love becomes a responsibility to do certain things that we try hard to do and fail and get discouraged and want to quit. Lord, there, there's, there's freedom for my soul that can let singing come out of my soul. So when I sing hymns, it's not just making melody with my mouth, but also with my heart. You long for your people to get together to make melody with their hearts. Lord, we can't do that when there's no freedom. And you know that, and that's why you provided freedom for us. Lord, give us some insight. Even today, as we think about this terrible pressure that so many feel, just to be different, look in a mirror and see faults, and then go ahead and try to change, and then fail at that, and then feel more pressure, and then feel victory for a while, and then fail again, and feel defeated, and wondering, how does anybody grow? Lord, teach us that freedom is no longer a responsibility to obey the law. Teach us something about the union that's ours in Christ, in a way that liberates, and use the next several Sundays to make that clear. Father, I'm very aware of how what I'm teaching can be misunderstood. And I pray by your Spirit that you'll keep us from using the liberty that's ours for license, that you'll keep us from a disregard for sin, that you'll keep us from a blasé attitude towards life. Father, make us intense, but with joy and peace and rest as we seek to live for you. We give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.